0: chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, on page uh, 671. And as you're doing that, you had two handouts you received as you came in, uh, and uh, one of them has uh, got an outline of where we're going inside, so it would be nice if you could have that as well. If you need a pencil, then feel free to get one from the uh, uh, welcome desk. Looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verses 15 to 29. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is indeed powerful. And we pray that, uh, that you'll be working by your spirit uh, through your word now uh, as we uh, look at this passage together. Uh, and we pray that uh, you would be working in each of our hearts uh, that you'll be pointing us to Christ, uh, that you'll be helping us to see uh, how we should live in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some people who work very hard to try and earn their way to heaven. They do all kinds of things, and they avoid all kinds of things to reach this goal. Uh, the classic example in the New Testament were the Pharisees. They were They were very careful to obey God's law as well as other laws from tradition to try and and reach that. You may know people like that. Perhaps you're even one yourself. On the other end of the scale, there are people who just don't care about that kind of thing. They throw morality out the window. They might have once been in that first group, but they're certainly not there anymore. They live for themselves and for what they might enjoy. And they feel perfectly free to indulge in what people from the first group would term as immoral behavior. You might know people like that. Perhaps you are even one yourself. In our passage today, the Holy Spirit, through the preacher who wrote it all those years ago, Takes issue with both of these approaches to life, and he shows that neither is the way to live. And he offers an alternative which is better by far. Our passage today starts with a problem. And you see, remember the last thing we saw in the passage last week was that God was the author of life circumstances. Back in verse 14 of chapter 7, we see that God made prosperity as well as adversity. One as well as the other. It's all in his hands. And so you'd expect that the righteous would be rewarded with prosperity. And the wicked would be punished with adversity. That's, that's what you think, wouldn't you? And it's often the case, but it's not always. And that is a big issue for the preacher. Verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. A righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And an evil man who prospers, who prolongs his life in evil doing. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? It's important to understand what the preacher means by righteousness here, isn't it? It's not a positional righteousness. As in the Old Testament sense, when Abraham believed God and God credited it to him or counted it to him as righteousness. It's not like the, the righteousness we have by faith in Christ. It's not about the righteousness of God, of Christ, that God gives to those who believe. No, no, no. This is a different kind. It's about being morally righteous in behavior. It's about being morally good. And as we see from his context, it's a, it's a kind of righteousness that stems from the desire to reap its rewards. Here, it is long life. This righteousness doesn't actually stem from the fear of the Lord, because when we get down to verse 18, we will see that the fear of the Lord is a third way that is different from pursuing righteousness, in this sense, or its opposite, pursuing wickedness. Righteousness here is being good. It's being good to get the blessings that you meant to think, or you think are meant to come from it. It's In this case, it's long life. But here is a righteous man, and yet he dies. And there is a wicked man, and he lives. That is vanity, futility. If that's going to happen, then what's the point of being righteous, isn't it? You might as well say, verse 16, do not be overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why destroy yourself? Or another way of translating the last bit of that verse is, why let yourself be horrified, be appalled, be confounded? What If you're being righteous in order to get the rewards of righteousness, well, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. If you're wise for the sake of getting the rewards of wisdom, for rewards of wisdom you will be appalled because the rewards may not come. And you might even see a wicked man who doesn't bother with all this getting them instead. On the other hand, it doesn't mean you should throw all caution to the wind and live in reckless evil. That wouldn't be productive either. In fact, that would lead you to ruin. Verse 17, do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Well, if that's the case, then how should you live? What should you do? Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. Now, this and the that are the two pieces of advice. Don't be overly righteous to get the reward of righteousness because you'll be appalled, you'll be confounded, you'll be disappointed. Don't be a wicked fool, because that'll lead to destruction. So hang on to both those things. So, what's the solution? Well, it's very interesting. The solution that the Spirit gives us through the preacher is not a middle way. It's not a moderation in all things kind of philosophy, you know. Healthy balance of being righteous and wicked. You know, a bit bit righteous and a little bit wicked kind of. Right? No. The solution, verse 18, second half, verse 18 is, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, shall come out from, or shall escape from, both of them. The one who fears God will escape from being confounded, appalled on the one hand, as the one who pursues righteousness for reward, and he will escape on the other hand from the punishment of the wicked. So avoid excessive righteousness on the one hand, avoid excessive evil on the other hand, Instead, fear God. But why can't righteousness and wisdom deliver? Why can't they achieve what they seem to be ought to? Well, in verses 19 to 24, the preacher talks more about righteousness and wisdom. In the outer brackets of these verses, he speaks of wisdom (verse 19 and 23, 24), and in the middle brackets, he speaks of right, middle part of the bracket. He speaks of righteousness. Uh, let's talk about the wisdom first. You might think he's going to disparage wisdom because he's just said, "Don't be too wise," but he actually doesn't do that. Wisdom is not useless, actually it's, actually, it's actually very good. Wisdom can give you better protection than lots of powerful men in a fortified place. Verse 19 he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise men, more than ten rulers who are in the city. Wisdom will generally keep you safe. It's good for you. Under some circumstances it will save you. So the problem is not with wisdom. The problem is that true wisdom is elusive. Even if, like the preacher, you're determined to achieve it, like the preacher, you will fail. Verse 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? It's a problem, isn't it? You can't be properly wise. You can't really understand God's plans and purposes for the world. You can't really grasp what God is doing. God has determined things in such a way as you can't find out. You can't work it out. No matter one other preacher says, don't strain yourself trying to be too wise. You can be as wise as you can, but you can't be wise enough. Now what about righteousness? Verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There isn't anyone who truly makes the righteousness great. Ah, come on, you say, "I'm, I'm pretty righteous. I do good, not evil. I keep the Ten Commandments. I obey the law. I'm kind of righteous. Okay, preacher says, I've got a proverb for you. It's a good one, because even righteous people like you can be unappreciated, can't they? I'm sure you've had the experience of people saying bad things about you. Of course you have, you poor thing. Here's the proverb, verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Okay? People have loose tongues, don't they? And they all say all kinds of things that it's better that you don't hear, right? It's better. Don't hear it or really it will get you down. But you know what it is like. I mean, people get carried away. They say things they don't mean. They might even call you things they don't, they don't mean you to hear it. In fact, they'd be quite embarrassed if you found out. I mean, you know what it's like, don't you? I mean, you've done that before as well, haven't you? you said things about people you don't want them to hear. Of course you have. We all do. Verse 22 says, Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. Right? Right. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not even you. So righteousness doesn't deliver because no one is properly righteous anyway. Wisdom doesn't deliver because no one is properly wise anyway. So why try so hard to be righteous? Why try so hard to be wise? You're going to fail on both accounts. And you'll be disappointed when you don't get the rewards of righteousness and wisdom that you think you deserve. But remember, the preacher said already that the answer is not wickedness. And the preacher knows that because he's explored it. Uh, Verse 25. I turn my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things. You've already seen that he's failed. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He wants to see foolishness and wickedness. Oh, let's see what he discovers. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. This is the classic wisdom picture of the adulteress. We see it in the book of Proverbs as well. But I think she stands for the lure of wickedness of all sorts. She seems attractive at, at one level, but... But her heart is a trap. She's the hunter who looks for and lures and snares a man and chains him to her. That is what wickedness does. And the man who is caught in adultery with her ruins his life and, and the lives of those who love him. Friends, adultery is folly. It's utterly stupid. But it happens every day, doesn't it? I hope it doesn't happen to anyone here. But wickedness of all sorts is a trap. Corruption, stealing, pornography, domestic violence, illicit drugs, excessive drinking, gambling, lies, sexual immorality. All these things trap people every day. Hope it doesn't happen to anyone here. He who pleases God, the preacher says in verse 26, escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. You may not want to be overly righteous on the one hand, but you don't want to go anywhere near this. It will bring you to ruin. The preacher can't discover the secret of wisdom, but he can see the wickedness of folly right before his eyes. So the preacher's worked out that righteousness and wisdom don't deliver because no one measures up to them. He's worked out that wickedness and folly don't really pay in the end. But that still doesn't satisfy him. Takes him some of the way, but he's still perplexed as the righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, the wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He's still trying to find the meaning of this, the reason for it, and he hasn't found it, but He stumbled across one thing, verse 27. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought for repeatedly, but I have not found. He's been searching, 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 searching for the scheme of things to understand how things... He hasn't found it, but he's discovered one thing, verse 28, second half. One man among a thousand I have found, But a woman among all these, I have not found. That's hard to understand, isn't it? Some translations have added the word upright. So they say, "One upright man among a thousand I have found, but not one woman." So that could be an idiomatic way of saying there's only upright people are like rare as hen's teeth, right? One in two thousand. But the word upright is not actually there. You see, he's searching for. Meaning, he's searching to the answer to the problem of the righteous sufferer, and all he can find is one person. We don't know anything about this person except that he's a man, and that's all we know. And then he goes on to something else, and we're left wondering: Who is this man? What? How does the preacher find him? If the if the search for the answer to the problem of evil culminates in him, what's, it, what's he like? In what sense is he the answer to this man's this, this preacher's searcher? And the preacher is frustratingly enigmatic at this point. Doesn't answer any of our questions. Doesn't say anything about this. He just leaves it there. Maybe he doesn't know either. Maybe he just sees him dimly, but not clearly enough to describe. He just goes back to his general conclusion about humankind. As he searches for understanding behind the way the world is, the the reason the righteous sometimes perish and the wicked get long life. There's there's only one other piece of the jigsaw puzzle that he can certainly say that he has. And that's in verse 29. See, this alone I have found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And that's consistent with the rest of the Bible, isn't it? You know from Genesis 2 that God made us good. But from Genesis 3 that we have deliberately rebelled against God. We have disobeyed him. We have gone our own way. God made man upright. But we have deliberately, we have calculatedly gone astray. And so the world is as it is because of sin. Well, if you're an Old Testament believer, if you're an Old Testament reader of this passage in Ecclesiastes, what what will be the conclusion for you? The problem is that righteousness and wisdom don't seem to get you the reward that You'd expect. Wickedness doesn't always get the punishment you'd expect. Part of the answer is, well, okay, no one's truly righteous, no one's truly wise, so I shouldn't expect the rewards of it. Another part of the answer is that the world is like it is because of sin, but part of the answer is still elusive, it involves a man, and that's all we know. So, practically speaking, what should the Old Testament reader of Ecclesiastes do? Well, What does the preacher say? Don't try to win your reward. Don't try to get God to bless you and give you long life by being righteous since there's no one really righteous. Don't think you can save yourself and give yourself long life by being wise. Wisdom is too elusive for us. Some wisdom is better than no wisdom. Gives you a measure of security but you can't get true wisdom. So don't try too hard or you'll be disappointed. Yet don't be too wicked, it will bring you to ruin. What do you do? Fear God. To fear God is to know who He is, to reverence Him and to trust Him for His majesty and His holiness, and to live your life in light of that. And when you fear God, then that is the way to live. We realize that actually that is the start of everything. For the Old Testament believer, well, that's what Proverbs says, isn't it? From the fear of the Lord, you live your life. Rather than chasing righteousness on the one hand, or wickedness and folly on the other, The Old Testament believers were to foster the fear of the Lord. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we must remember that this preacher in the Old Testament has been given a perspective, a different perspective to us, because he is is talking about life under the sun. Not life without God, we know his conclusion is fear God. It's life as if this life is all there is. Life without the resurrection, life without the gospel. He's got a limited perspective, and yet the conclusion is still, fear God. But this is part of the Spirit's inspired word, and the Spirit has shown us many more things in the rest of the Bible that help us broaden our perspective, but it doesn't negate what he says here. His advice for life under the sun applies when it's transposed to the New Testament context of life in the kingdom. But we need to think carefully, what's the same for us and what's different for us as God's people today? It's still true that there is no one righteous, isn't it? See that repeated over and over again. Uh, the Old Testament passage that Paul was probably alluding to in our New Testament reading from Romans 3 today is probably one of the ones, is this one. There is no one righteous, we are all sinners. And it's still true that wisdom is elusive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one that in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. He says in another context, in Ephesians 4.18 that Human beings by nature are darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. The sinful human heart is naturally foolish, not wise. Our minds are affected by sin. God has set things up that true wisdom will not be found by sinful human beings. We cannot know the scheme of things. We cannot work out God's plans and purposes. But there is one exception to this. The preacher found one man in whom the answer is, but couldn't say anything about him. That's where Revelation was up to at that stage. But we have seen one man in whom is hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. And if you get him, then you've got it all. We have seen the one righteous person, the true wise man, the one in whom all God's plans and purposes are fulfilled. His name is Jesus Christ and 2,000 years ago he lived the perfect, righteous, wise life. Through him we truly know God. For God has revealed Himself to us perfectly in Him. And we know God's plans and purposes are to sum up everything in Him so that Christ is Lord of all, and that is good because He truly deserves it. And yet, this perfectly righteous man, this perfectly wise man, perished in His righteousness. But it wasn't meaningless. It wasn't vanity. Because Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our unrighteousness and our culpable ignorance. He bore the wrath that we deserve. He paid the debt that we owe. He took our place under God's curse so that we could be saved in spite of our evil doing. This righteous man perished in his righteousness to do the will of God. And this one true righteous man perished in his righteousness and was raised from the dead and exalted as Lord of all. God brought justice for his true righteous man in the end. He did. And Jesus will return to judge the world so that the wicked person who prolongs his life in evil doing won't get away with it forever. The answer to the preacher's problem was ultimately in this one man, Jesus Christ. So how should we live now that Christ has come? How should we who have received this greater revelation of God now apply? Well, first of all, remember, what's different? We live in light of eternity because we have seen that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He will raise the dead. He will judge the world. We've got a bigger perspective than the preacher. We know that what happens in life now is important, but we know it's not so important. And the goal is not to get long life. It's about eternal life, isn't it? We're not so worried about the righteous dying young and the wicked living long. We're more concerned about where we spend eternity. Where each of them spend eternity. Where we will spend eternity. Will we be with Jesus in glory forever? Or will we still be under God's condemnation? Now oh, the passage in Ecclesiastes helps us with that as well. Because it tells us that the way to life is not by pursuing moral excellence for the rewards we think might come from it. There is no one Righteous. If you think you're going to win God's blessings by being good, forget it. If you think you're going to get to heaven by being good, forget it. No matter how many charitable acts you do, how many times you fast, how many church activities you participate in, you're never going to be good enough. Stop trying so hard, you're never going to make it anyway. You'll only be disappointed, horrified, appalled, confounded. And while we're at it, wisdom is still elusive, isn't it? Read all the books in Kunokunya, understand all the arguments of the philosophers from Aristotle to Albert Camus. No one's going to make you wise enough to reach God. Stop trying so hard. Wisdom is hidden anyway. If you're trying to get eternal life by wisdom, you'll be disappointed as well. But the conclusion is not that it's okay to be wicked, eh? the conclusion is fear God. To know who God is, to reverence and trust him for his majesty and holiness, and order your life in light of that. Fearing God is to know who God is, to reverence and trust him for his majesty and holiness, and to order your life in light of that. And where do we see God's character, his majesty, his holiness most clearly? We see it in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, don't we? At the cross of Jesus, we see God's amazing love. He loves us enough to pay that terrible price to save us unrighteous fools from from the fate that we deserve. At the cross of Jesus, we see God's holiness and justice. He does not let sin go unpunished, even if he has to bear the punishment himself in order to save us. At the resurrection of Jesus, we see God's faithfulness. He fulfills his promise to his Son and all his promises through his Son. We see that he is the one who raises the dead and in the end vindicates the righteous. We still struggle with the fact that seemingly good people suffer and bad people seem to get away with things. We've already seen from the Old Testament that part of the answer is no one's good already seen that part of the answer is the world's a fallen place, but most importantly in the Gospel, through the one man, we now see and see ever so clearly the character of the God who made both prosperity and adversity, and we know that he is good. We know that in Christ God himself was the righteous sufferer par excellence, and his death was not in vain. It brings good out of evil, life out of death. We've seen his glory and his majesty at the cross and the resurrection. And we can trust him. Ecclesiastes calls upon us to fear this God. To reverently trust him even when circumstances would cause us to doubt his character. And in New Testament terms, that is called faith. And we are saved by faith, by trusting in God. Not saved by our righteousness or moral excellence, no point pursuing that to be saved. Not saved by our wisdom or knowledge, no point pursuing that to be saved. We are saved when we trust in the God who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Christ, we are clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, that is his. We are motivated to live lives that please him, not in order to be saved, but in thanksgiving for the salvation that he has won for us. Faith, the fear of the Lord, trusting in Christ and his gospel, that is the, the centre thing that motivates our living. And when we trust in Christ, we have access to the wisdom of God because true wisdom is not found in human speculation but in God's revelation of himself in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself overly wise. Fear God. Trust in Jesus. And you will escape in the end. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we acknowledge that you are the one who gives prosperity and calamity, that all things are in your hands. We acknowledge our sinfulness, we know that not one of us is righteous, we can't make ourselves righteous, we acknowledge our ignorance and folly, that we cannot reach wisdom in and of ourselves. In fact, we know we have a tendency to fall into sin and susceptible to evil. But we come before you, the holy God, who showed your holiness at the cross. We come before you, the loving God, who showed your love for us by giving your Son to die for us. Unworthy sinners that we are. We come before you, our faithful God, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. May we be people who fear you, who reverence you, who know who you are, who trust your character of love and mercy, who see you as you have revealed yourself to us in Christ and who seek to order our lives in in light of that. Help us not to be people who pursue righteousness for the wrong reasons and for the wrong way. Guard us from falling into the folly of wickedness. But keep us looking to you yourself, the God who is to be feared and to live our lives by faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.